Please turn in your Bibles to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. We sang, Brethren, we are met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray in holy manner. We'll be showered all around. What is acceptable worship to the Lord? Was that acceptable when we sang that to the Lord? Are we really worshiping? We are met to worship? Uh, What makes it acceptable? The fact that we are here and not on the golf course uh, where you might prefer to be? Uh, That uh, you had a quiet time all through the week? That you sang uh, with all your heart? All those are certainly good things. Does that make it acceptable? Well, Isaiah here deals with the issue of true worship and what is true worship. He starts off here with what is not true worship. In uh, verse 1, notice God's command to him to show the people uh, of God their sin. Shout it out aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Now, don't water this down, Isaiah. Use uh, strong rebuke. Declare to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob, their sins. Here's the exposing word of God uh, that comes to people who are very religious, uh, who are going through the activities of Uh, worshiping God uh, according to what he had appointed uh, in their day. Uh, Notice the conformity uh, to the standard that Israel seemed to have, the standard of worship. And verse 2, For day after day they seek me out, says God. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Uh, Here they are going through the appointed ceremonies, going to the temple, uh, offering the sacrifices. And remember that part of that worship was uh, the regular uh, bringing of a lamb and uh, the priests would confess their sin, the people's sin over the head of the lamb, and then that lamb's blood would be symbolically presented to God in the holiest of all at the, uh, over the Ark of the Covenant there where you had the Ten Commandments, and then they'd be told they were forgiven. And of course, that, that, blood's, that blood of the lamb pointed to the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember the great principle that was designed to teach here, Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And God's only way of forgiving sin is through the blood of the Lamb. If you don't shed that blood, if you don't bring that Lamb's blood, then you're not going to be forgiven. And, of course, that was really teaching that through the true Lamb, Jesus Christ's blood, that was going to be shed for their sins and for our sins, God forgives men. And only through that. Uh, Remember the prophecy... Uh, Isaiah in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him this coming Messiah, who would be God the Son, the iniquity of us all. 
And uh, by knowledge of him shall my righteous servant justify many. That we're legally acquitted, uh, we're justified, we're declared not guilty through faith in the true Lamb of God. They, they had faith in God's promise to forgive through that Lamb, and that was all right. If they were truly repentant and they trusted in God's promise. Well, if we're truly repentant, we trust in the true Lamb, Jesus Christ, we're forgiven, we're justified. And uh, they were doing this. But, uh, notice here... And as they go through it, they say, God, we have worshipped you, and you haven't, you haven't answered our prayers. You haven't undertaken on our behalf. Notice in verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you've not noticed? They'd gone beyond just the ceremonies appointed. They were fasting. They were doing things even beyond that. And they say, well, God, what's wrong here? wonder if you feel like that. You feel like, God, I have worshipped you. I have, I have come to church. I have done the appointed things. And I've been asking you to do this and such, and you haven't done it. Well, uh, their problem was hypocrisy. Notice the cataloging of their sins by God. In uh, verse 3, the last part of it, it says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Uh, here they, they went through the religious ceremonies, but meanwhile they're practicing things that are offensive to God. Suppose I tell my wife, Honey, I really love you. I love you with all my heart. You are wonderful. You're fantastic. Gosh, I'm blessed to have you as my wife. Meanwhile, I am doing things that are very offensive to her. Somehow my profession of love is pretty hollow. That's what you had here. Uh, and he details, he catalogs some sins here, just singles out certain things. They had many other sins, but he catalogs these. Uh, they were covetous. Uh, they sought to worship God but serve themselves at the same time. They were covetous of their time. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Uh, they didn't really want to spend time seeking God's face, searching their heart, meditating on his word. Uh, they wanted to do the religious thing and get it over with and meanwhile do their thing. That's pretty convicting to me, personally. Uh, a lot of times you say, what can I pray for you about? And you know what I say. I say, pray for my walk with the Lord, for my personal walk with the Lord. It's a tendency to have a daily quiet time and check the time off. I read this and I prayed this, but meanwhile, not to really connect, but to be thinking of 10,000 other things and just get this over with so I can go about these other things. Uh, they were covetous of their time, and they exploited others. Notice it says, uh, on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. They didn't deal with them fairly. And yet, here's this, this they're doing these religious things. So their covetousness 
and their contentiousness. In verse 4, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Uh, All of us have had the situation where we said, man, uh, I'm impressed with so-and-so, and somebody said, well, you don't live with him. If you live with him, you wouldn't be that impressed. Uh, he's an angry person. Uh, he is uh, caustic. Uh, he's quarrelsome. And here they were, uh, doing that kind of thing. Now, there were many other sins that are cataloged in these other chapters of Isaiah right around here, but he singles these out. And these are representative. So we see what isn't true worship. These people draw nigh with their lips, but their hearts far away. What is true worship? In uh, verse 6 here, uh, he says, uh, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Uh, It's got to affect my lifestyle. It can't be compartmentalized. If it's true worship, it can't be coming to church on Sunday and singing and praising and then treating people unfairly during the week and not doing justice. Uh, Just with the people with whom I have dealings, undoing what I've done wrong to them. How many of you have had to, after you became a Christian, go back to somebody and say, Hey, I want to ask your forgiveness for what I did. I want to make this right that I did wrong or even as a Christian doing it. Last Sunday I said, how many of y'all read the biography of Adoniram Judson, the first missionary from America? He and his wife, who went to Burma. We gave out a lot of those books. How many of you read that for, for our mission conference? And hands went up all over. And I got a little note from one lady this week that says, I raised my hand, I lied. <laughs> I went home, I read that book right after I went home. <laughs> Wonderful. That's true worship. That's wonderful. Uh, where we uh, we uh, want this thing to be in our everyday dealings here. And uh, uh, so, uh, remember, Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar, you come to worship. And you remember your brother has all against you. Leave your gift. First go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Otherwise, our worship is not acceptable. If I'm not trying to make right things that I've done wrong. Uh, and uh, so, seek to bring, be just in my personal life and seek to bring about justice in our society. There are a lot of things wrong in our society. Unjust things. And you and I are the government. This is government of the people, by the people, for the people. We elect our representatives. We influence them. And we have a say. We're the government. And if I'm not trying to bring about justice in society, we have many injustices. Think of the children that are aborted. That's a terrible injustice in our society. Children being killed every day. Hundreds and thousands. Every year, a million and a half. That's an injustice. We must labor to bring about justice in our society and confront the social sins. Defend 
Remember Isaiah 1, chapter 1 of Isaiah, in verse 15, he says, Even if you offer prayers, I will not listen. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That's trying to bring about justice in our society here. And uh, he mentions another thing. Charitable. Being charitable. Being just, being charitable. In verse 7, he says, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Remember, John in 1 John 3.17 says, Whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up the bowels of his compassion, doesn't he has the resources, but he doesn't seek to meet the need. How dwells the love of God in him? We profess to love God, but if I'm not using my resources to seek to meet my brother's need, I'm not being charitable. I, how can I really say that I love God? Now, uh, you get look at verse 10 where he sort of summarizes this. He says, And if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness. So, here's a lifestyle of really seeking to do that. And when we uh, talk about uh, satisfying the needs of our brother, remember, their greatest need is Jesus Christ. Whatever needs they may have, whatever needs, whether they need uh, health, whether they need a job, housing, whatever other needs they have, their greatest need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as the church, as the people of God, we must seek to meet that need as long with the other needs. But that's got to be central to what we do, where we tell them of the Son of God who came into this world to die for sinners and that salvation is offered as a sheer gift to all who surrender to him and place their faith in him as the one who died to them. We must communicate that. Uh, gospel. Now, uh, we sang a little earlier, let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other too. Uh, let us love to pray for, love and pray for sinners till, uh, till our God makes all things new. God can make them new. Uh, let me read you an illustration here. <clears throat> from a workbook and uh, this fellow says I used to work downtown in the Morgan Keegan building late one afternoon about 6 p.m. I took a break and walked over to the little supermarket across the street that has a counter at the back where they make sandwiches I went to get a sandwich and drink for supper when I approached the front door I noticed a man a street person peering intently into the store I had to ask him to step aside so I could get in the door Seeing him there reminded me at that time of my neighbor's dog who would follow me to the mini-mart in Jackson and sit square in front of the door peering in until we came out. I later realized what was the object of his interest. After I had picked up a sandwich of Coke, I stood in line to check out. A street person was in line behind me. As I was standing there, the man behind me mumbled something like, So little for so many. I asked him what he meant, and he told me that he was buying what he could to feed himself and his friends, and all he could buy was some hamburger meat and a loaf of white bread, 
they couldn't build a fire for the hamburger, so they were going to eat raw hamburger sandwiches. Something inside of me said, do something. So I took the man, and we went to the back to get some sandwiches, milk, and chips. The store management was concerned, wanted the man to leave. I said, no, the man's not bothering me. I just wanted to buy some food for him. Anyway, uh, while we were waiting on the sandwiches, I asked the man if he had any family and where he was from. And He had a family, but through various circumstances, he'd failed them and lost his job, become a street person, a bum, as he put it. He said he had a son and a daughter he hadn't seen in many years, but they didn't love him anymore, and they were embarrassed by his lifestyle. I showed him pictures of my children. I told him I bet his children would still love him and help him and welcome him back. If he just called, he started crying. To make this story short, after I paid for the food, which he promptly distributed to the man at the, man at the door and three or four others I had not seen, I convinced him to call his daughter. There are pay phones on the mall, and I gave him a dollar and quarters. He called his daughter. After a few minutes on the phone, he came back with tears in his eyes, told me his daughter, who lived in Jackson, Tennessee, was coming to pick him up. He was going home. What a story. Our friend Nash Nayland had shared it in a letter in which he was telling what was going on in his life and seeking counsel on some big decisions. What did such a moving story have to do with his decisions? He went on, great story, huh? Only it never happened. Yes, I did go to the grocery store for a sandwich. I did see a street person at the front door peering in. Yes, there was a street person standing in line behind me. Yes, he did say something like, so little for so many. And yes, something inside of me said, do something. But instead of doing something, I did nothing. I didn't even talk to him. His friend, the friend that was writing to them for counsel couldn't get over his missed opportunity. And I uh, was saying, what can I do to structure my life so that I take those opportunities instead of missing those opportunities? And that's it, in a sense. Uh, we do have to structure our lives and think in terms of how can I help those in need around me? How, not just personally, but again, the part of the government, how can the government help? Unfortunately, the government hurts oftentimes when it tries to help. It helps in such a way that undermines incentive. And we're part of that. We're responsible to try to correct that. And uh, so uh, that's part of it, to be just in our dealings and seek to bring about justice in our society, be charitable, seek to help others, and then to sanctify the Sabbath. That's the third thing he singles out here as part of true worship. In verse 13, uh, he says, uh, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, So, sanctifying the Lord's day, setting apart the Sabbath here. Uh, Notice, uh, not, not, he says, keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath. In other words, watch how you use the Sabbath. Set it apart. Think carefully about it. It's not a day for doing as we please. It's not a holiday. It's a holy day. It's to be honored. If you 
He says, he called the Sabbath a delight, the Lord's holy day honorable. Honor it. And, uh, you know, it's a tremendously important thing. There's no way that we are going to not compartmentalize our our religion if we don't do this right. <clears throat> if we don't honor the Lord's day, then our soul's not going to catch up with our bodies. And uh, so here, how do we do this? Notice the determining factor of what's a proper use of the day and not a proper use of the day is that whether this or that activity defiles or honors the day is whether it's a mere indulgence of what I want to do, a personal pleasure, doing my own pleasure, or whether it conduces to sweet delight in the Lord and in His ways. If you call the Sabbath a delight, the Lord's holy day honorable, if you honor it by not doing your own way, not doing as you please, or speaking idle words here, uh, you have... We live under the new administration of the covenant of grace. Under the old administration, you had the seventh day of the week, which was in remembrance of creation and God's resting on the seventh day. Now we do the first day of the week as the day set apart in remembrance of the Lord's resurrection on that first day, Jesus' resurrection. So the day changes, but the Sabbath remains. The idea of one day set apart has still part of God's commands. That's the fourth commandment. And it's engraven in stone. It's for all time here. And uh, here's the principle. That's so crucial. Uh, here's a book on worship in search of wonder, a call to renewal. talks about what happens on the Lord's Day and when we come together. It says, uh, worship is a counterfeit detector. It exposes the competing, conflicting worldviews that are passed off as reality. In worship, the community of faith reminds itself of the alternative world that God has ordered. It, it's a counterfeit detector. That's what it serves to when we come together and observe the Lord's Day together here. Worship is an alignment center. We pull into the station with our wheels headed the wrong way, worshiping our careers, our money, our friends. And there we remember that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Worship is a compass recalibrator. It tells us again which way is north. Amen. As we come together on Sunday and we lift up the Lord and we study His Word and we share with each other and we pray for each other, Pray together about his cause. Man, we get straight. Which way is north here? It's a compass recalibrator. Uh, it says, our corporate worship helps us make sense of the world by reminding us of sin, salvation, and human freedom to choose between God and evil. Not only does that awareness turn us toward God, but it also prompts ethical renewal crucial uh, that we do this. Uh, Amos 5, 23-24 kind of sums all this up where God says there back in the prophet Amos' writings, Away with the noise of your songs. 
I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Now, God says, now, let that be part of your worship. Justice. Roll on like a river here. And let justice come down. And righteousness. You be charitable. You do deal justly. That's true worship. That's hard. That's costly. It's not too costly to come together and sing some songs. That's fun. It's costly to take the teachings of God's Word and apply it to everyday life. To how we conduct our business. To how we treat our family to our thought life, to what we watch, to what we say, to how we use our money, to helping those that are in real need and very time-consuming and very costly to help them. But that's true worship. Along with the other. And when we do them together, that's wonderful. We mustn't separate them, though. Now, how much is that worth? What's the value of that? If I do that, what's the result? Spurgeon, in a sermon on this chapter of Isaiah, says, he has a sermon entitled, The Happy Christian. He says, observe in what connection this sunny sketch of prosperity occurs. The setting is a framework of duties. We've been talking about duties. The blessings are not promised to every Christian unconditionally. If you do this or that, then such blessings will be yours, says God. Though salvation is of grace, sheer gift, the happiness of the Christian does depend upon his obedience. We're not saved by our obedience, but the happiness of the Christian, the blessing now, does depend on his obedience, says Spurgeon. Now, of course, we only fill out these duties and carry them out and bring them about, that justice, that charitableness and all, as we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about doing this in our own strength. But we are talking about doing it and tackling it. What will be the result? What's the worth of this? Notice the first result in verse 8. Light in darkness. He says there... uh, Then your light will break forth like dawn, and your healing will appear quickly, will quickly appear. And uh, here's this light in darkness. Verse 10. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness. Your night will become like noonday. You go through some dark periods. Some of you right now are going through some dark periods. But in those dark periods, God, will give you fresh light. Light will shine. Light in darkness. Security. In verse 8, the last part, it says, And then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. We're in a battle. We need an advance guard and a rear guard. And your righteousness, these this righteous way of fleshing out these things, this justice and this charitableness, that will be your security. God will honor that. And that will be your advance guard, and He will be your rear guard. And that's security. That doesn't mean you may not undergo some painful things, 
Nonetheless, that's the point of security. You want to be secure? You flesh this out. You worship truly, and you will be secure. Uh, Answer prayer, verse 9. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here am I. Answered prayer. Free-flowing interaction here with the Lord. Uh, guide us. Verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs. His provision. Nourishment. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Now, there are a lot of blessings wrapped up in that statement. You will be like a well-watered garden. Do you want that? Do you want that? Here it is. If we worship truly, true worship. Uh, Spurgeon says, this is a portrait of a believer in a healthy state. To let all who belong to the church understand it's not necessary that we should be weak in faith. We can be that well-watered garden. We can be that happy Christian. Blessed children, verse 12, he says, Your people will rebuild. Your people means the people who come from you, your descendants, your children. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dread. Our society, the foundations are crumbling, the walls are coming down. But if we will worship God, our children after us, they will be, along with us, repairers of the breach and building up the foundation. God will honor it. You remember that, uh, and one other thing here, he says, joy in the Lord. Verse 14, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Man, the worth of true worship. Those blessings. Let's evaluate our worship. What solemn things. Is your worship acceptable? Is my worship acceptable? Not unless it's combined with these things. Not unless it's fleshed out in these daily doing of justice and being charitable and sanctifying the Sabbath. Uh, remember James said, True religion is to visit the fathers and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, we have to rely on His power as we tackle these duties to transform us and enable us to flesh it out. And we can live these kind of lives. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This isn't some ideal that you cannot hit. This is the norm. This should be the norm for us. This is what God has provided for us. This is the happy Christian. Uh, oh, the worth of this. What changes need to be made in your life to flesh it out? Is there some area where you're not being just or not being charitable? Uh, not assuming responsibilities, not tackling duty, not sanctifying the Sabbath? Uh, are you that angry person? Are you covetous? Where, what, what changes need to be made in your life personally 
to flesh this out in your family. What about seeing uh, with Joshua? Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make a choice. Now there's some here that these blessings cannot apply to. You will not be like a well-watered garden. You will not have light and darkness. You will not have security because you're not a Christian. And until you receive Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, into your life, trusting Him as your true Lamb who died for you and surrendering Him as your Master, then you don't belong to Him. And these promises can't apply. That's the starting place. If you've never done that, do that today. Let's bow in prayer. As our hearts are bowed, uh, are you a true worshiper? Is there some area of your life that you know is wrong and you haven't been willing to tackle it, face it? Is there some letter you need to write? Is there something you need to make right that was wrong? Someone that has ought against you and you ought to go to them before you worship. Uh, what about this reaching out to those in need? Sanctifying the Sabbath. Where, where are you in those things? What changes need to be made? Right now, before God, deal with those. If you're a young person, is there some, something you're listening to in your music that's not right? If there's something you're watching, some habit, some relationship, rebellion against parents, Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your lamb, never surrendered to him as your master, but you want to do that. You want these promises to apply. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I'm not a well-watered garden, but I want to be. I want that light and darkness. I want you as my Lord, and I trust you as my lamb. Come into my life. Amen.